Well, welcome to Faith Church. Glad you are with us today. My name is Matthew, one of the pastoral team here, and it's a joy to have you in the room and those kind of watching online, wherever you may be. Hey, if you have a copy of the scriptures, would you join me in Matthew chapter 21? Uh, for those maybe that didn't bring a printed copy, would like to follow along digitally, there's a QR code on your screen. You can pull out your phone, scan it, it'll pop open a link, take you to a spot where you can read along, take some notes on your own if you'd like, email it to yourself so that you don't lose those notes and you can look back over them maybe later this week when you're spending some time with the Lord and going back over what the Lord has said to you. Matthew 23, we're going to be, or 21, we'll start in verse 23. And uh, we've been in this collection for several weeks now, for over 41 days. This is episode number 41 of this collection. Uh, your Netflix favorite series isn't even as long as this one, so we're getting into the Lord and we're loving Him more than we love our Netflix shows. Matthew 21, we're exploring this, uh, this theme of the King Jesus gospel. What are the things Jesus proclaimed were and are the gospel? We want to start with the gospel that Jesus lived and proclaimed so that we don't end up with the gospel that he did not live and proclaim. And this is what we've been doing. And today we're going to look at an exchange and two parables that Jesus tells to illustrate the kingdom of God. And, and this, these parables are stories, if you will. And these stories kind of are, are tossed out alongside of our lives. And, and these parables and stories are meant to, to be um, meditative literature, if you will. That, that your first reading, you might understand some things, but it's as you go back and remind and think about and mull it over and meditate on it more and more and more. And as you go along the way in your life, it begins to be illuminated more robust in your understanding and you begin to understand some things as it happens and it applies to your own, own life. Now, parables require what uh, sociologists and, 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 and uh, thinkers call high-context thinking and communication. I, I've been fascinated by this um, dichotomy and, and, and contrast between high-context thinking and communicating and low-context thinking and communicating. And typically, based on where you are born or live, it begins, uh, it kind of defines there are, there are high-context communicating cultures and there are lower-context communicating cultures. That's not a statement of intelligence or education. It's just a statement of style of communication. In fact, it's a really fascinating thing. Anytime I see an article on it, I'm really just fascinated by it. Uh, those that typically come from high-text communicating cultures, uh, symbolism is important, a lot of metaphor, a lot of body language, um, pictures. Um, there are many unspoken things that you pick up on in cues, very verbal in its approach, low-context thinking or communicating has to do with like very short concise, to the point, black and white, written type communication, tweetable things that like simplifies it and that's all I got to think about. Sometimes low context communication has very little room for nuance and tension. What you need to understand is that for us in the West, typically and generally, it is a low context way of communicating that we have all kind of grown up in and utilized to, to varying degrees. Some of us have a little bit different high context. We like words and pictures and thoughts and we use lots of words to say a few things and that's kind of how some of us are. Other people, like the woman that I am so joyously married to, prefers things written, short, simple, sweet, get to the point and that's kind of it. And it seems abrupt, harsh, rash at different times, very black and white, no room for, for thought and nuance on some things. And, and we've learned, though we have different communication styles through pain and tears and toil, how to communicate and get on the same page in many areas of our life. Jesus, in his day, 
in the ancient Near East is much more of a high context communication style. And so these parables require us to look beyond just the surface and explore and unpack some of the nuance of what they mean as we think and meditate and link into these truths. Let, let's get, let's get, take a look at them. Matthew 21, starting in verse 23. This is uh, how it goes. When Jesus returned to the temple and he began to teach, the leading priests and elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all of these things. Who gave you the right? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? They talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask us why. We didn't believe him. If we say it was merely human, we'll be mobbed because the people believed John was a prophet. So they finally replied, eh, we don't really know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later, he changed his mind and went anyways. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? They replied, well, the first. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth. Corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to what? To live. But you did not believe him. While tax collectors and prostitutes, they did. And even when you saw this happening... You refused to believe him and repent of your sins. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Now, pause. Uh, you have to read scripture in context. You cannot take a verse out of context. Jesus is not talking about border security. And if you're trying to lift a scripture to make a political point, you are missing the point entirely. We've got to read in context and keep it in the context, all right? I'm not saying Jesus has something against security. I'm just saying this verse has nothing to do with that. You're welcome. <laughs> then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers, and he moved to another country. At the last time of grape harvest, he sent his, ser his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servant, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. For the landowner sent a, a larger group of his servants to collect for him. But the results were the same. Finally, the landowner set, sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir of the estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, What do you think he will do to these farmers? The religious leaders replied, He will put wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over the stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. When the leading priest and the Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds 
who considered Jesus to be a prophet. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words, these words that we can think about, tease out and look at the nuance of, meditate on, and speak to us in our lives today. Lord, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart ready to receive your word? Lord, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the hearer of the listener's heart be pleasing in your sight today. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Jesus uses these two examples of a father and a landowner to talk to us about our relationship and our allegiance to God. Throughout this collection of the King Jesus gospel, we keep using the phrase faith in exchange for the word allegiance. We've been kind of changing this idea of believing and faith and using some different language to kind of reorient us and shake us free of of kind of the assumptions of what we think a word means. You can hear a word so many times that eventually you become tone deaf to the reality or the meaning or the impact of what a word might mean. And I think overall, we've done this with the words believe, faith, hope, salvation. We've kind of done these with these words, and I'm using this word allegiance very intentionally. Now, the English word believe and English word faith are the word pistis in the Greek, which means things like loyalty, steadfastness, fidelity, faithfulness, and trust. When you look Historically, at the context of how this word pistis is used throughout Greek literature in the ancient Near East, in the times of Jesus, how contemporaries would use this word, a correct or appropriate translation of the Greek word pistis is the word allegiance. In fact, that's how it's predominantly used throughout the time of Jesus' life in the greater area of his community. These ideas that faith and belief, they are not invisible forces, nor are they meant to be temporary, momentary things. They are outward workings of our loyal allegiance to Jesus as king. That's what belief is. That's what faith is. It's an outward working of your loyal affection and allegiance to Jesus. This is what Jesus is trying to summarize when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Which of these is more important? Jesus says both. They're the same coin. They are one side and the other side of the same coin called your your faith and relationship with Jesus. You can love a neighbor and not love God. But friends, can I... Can I let you in on a secret? You cannot love God and not love your neighbor. If you say you love God but do not love the people around you, what you have is not love for God. You have love for something else. Because it's the two sides of the same coin. There's a natural allegiance and outworking of our loyal allegiance to Jesus as king, a fidelity that we hold to. Hebrews 11.1 says it like this, faith or pistis, shows the reality it shows the reality it shows the reality of what we hope for it is the evidence of the things we can't see let me ask you a question based on this one verse is faith visible or invisible it's visible It's visible. It's the evidence of what you're hoping for. It's the outwork of the inward allegiance that you profess and claim and hold to in your own life. It's the substance. You can't have substance if you don't have anything. It's substantive. He goes on to say in verse 11 of Hebrews, uh, uh, verse 6 of Hebrews 11, and it is impossible to please God. Without pistis, without faith, without allegiance, 
without an outward working of your fidelity and loyal allegiance to Jesus as king. Anyone who wants to come to God must believe that God exists. Congratulations. Believing God exists puts you on par with all of the demons in hell. And they're not going to experience eternal life because they believe that God exists. And anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards, or another word you could say is he responds to those who sincerely, authentically, with their loyal allegiance, seek him. When your attention and awareness and affections begin to move in the direction of Jesus as king, there's there's this part of this response that takes place. There's an outward working of your allegiance, your, your, your faith, your, your, your love and loyalty to Jesus as king. This is what we've been talking about. And this is what Jesus is confronting with the religious leaders. This is what he's examining. See, they came to question Jesus' authority. But Jesus asked them some questions and told them some stories because he wanted them to examine where their allegiance lied. He wanted them to examine their own faith. He wanted them to examine their own religion, their own perceived and proclaimed view of God. He was challenging their allegiance. And I think that there are three things that we need to examine in our own life, in our own allegiance, in our own outward working and faith in God. The first one that we want to examine today is this, this issue of authority. Everybody say authority. authority. It's good to say words like that that we don't think much of anymore. It's good to remind us that there, are, there is authority in our world. It's good to remind us that authority is here. It's good to know that earthly authority is delegated from God and the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of God, we are given authority, not control. We're given authority, we're not given control. We're giving authority within our life to live our life and live and move and find the things that occur in our life, but we are not given control of our life. In fact, following Jesus actually requires that you recognize him as Lord, as king, as reigning and ruling in this world and in the world that is to come. That he is king, he is Lord of all lords, and you and I must submit our authority and control in our lives and put it squarely back in the sovereign hands of the one who created it all. See, Jesus is coming jesus is the king and the kingship of jesus is a recognition acknowledgement and a submission to his sovereign rule and authority he rules and he reigns god is the landowner and he was confronting the religious leaders because they stopped recognizing the landowner and they started believing their own press that they were the controlling interests of the land But they weren't, and they aren't. They were questioning his authority in this process. This was the problem. The farmers were the problem, not the landowner. The landowner gave them authority, and they wanted to take control. Problems and power struggles arise in our world and in our life because we confuse authority for control. See, I'm going to talk more about this idea of authority and control uh, in a few weeks uh, when Jesus tells another parable about stewardship similar to this one. And so we're going to get into that a little bit more. But, but let me just ask this question. Will you give God control of your life? Or are you just looking for a sugar daddy to take care of all of your needs? you don't know what a sugar daddy is i suggest maybe not googling it googling it you might just ask somebody around you just looking out for you will you give god control of your life this year will you give him control of the relationships 
He's given you authority to make friends and build relationships, but, but you've taken it upon yourself to try to control. See, God's probably been speaking to some of you about cutting loose some relationships and investing in new relationships around the kingdom of God, and you haven't done it yet. My question is, will you ever? Why? Why? Because God is interested. You've confused the authority that God has given you in your life for control of your life. And most of us, we rub this, doesn't it? We want to control outcomes, but we don't get to. Will you give God control of your relationship? Will you give God control of the money that is your, in your bank account? Will you give God control of your business? Will you give God control of your schedule? You have meetings and things all day long. You have appointments and schedules and things that you're doing one right after the other. But when are you ever going to schedule time for God? Just gonna, I don't, you don't understand, God. We've got to get Susie here and Johnny to this thing. And I've, got, I've got this business and this appointment and this other thing. And I mean, It'll happen at some point. Yeah, but... When we really give him authority and control of our life, then, then we really look to prioritize him as the source of our life. And things begin to shift in us because as we give him our allegiance and our loyalty and our faith, the outward working of our faith leads us to seek him and not just believe in the idea of him. And God responds because our relationship with God, our religion, our faith, the God that we serve invites us into a reciprocal back and forth relationship and exchange. Oh, don't get me wrong. The exchange isn't equal. You don't bring anything to the table that God needs. But he still invites you to the table and makes the exchange anyways. Whatever level of authority you've been delegated, you will also be accountable for. And Jesus was holding these leaders accountable for their responsibility in the vineyard of the nation of Israel. They were controlling people. They wanted to hold on political power. They wanted to hold on to their wealth. Jesus was confronting them saying, you don't get control anymore because the landowner is coming to collect the fruit and the stewardship and the results. Uh, let me say it this way. Jesus gave us agency, not autonomy. He, he's given us agency, but he hasn't given us autonomy because we're meant to be linked and connected to him. And this leads us to examine the second thing today from these parables. First was this idea of authority. The second is examining stewardship. Again, I'm, I'm talking more about the, the full picture of what stewardship is. But this parable shows that the father gave commands and the sons needed to respond. The, 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 the parables show that the landowner gave assignments and agency to people to work and cultivate in his vineyard giving them all the supply that they needed to have things taken care of and to do the grapes and do the harvest, supplied everything they needed for the harvest of the grapes. But he was coming to check in on those things. There, there was this element of stewardship. Listen, we steward God's commands and obey his assignments because of our allegiance to him. In other words, when we obey what God instructs, what God commands, what God requests and requires, when we respond in obedience, we are responding in faith. Say it another way. When we obey what God has said, we are responding with our allegiance. The outward working of our loyalty and affection and commitment to the relationship and a response to his work within us. It's interesting, the father gave a command to both boys. One boy obeyed and the other just gave him lip service. I think one of the number one problems that people have with the church in the West, they say, is that it's hypocritical. We give him lip service. Here's me filtering. (laughs) I can always count on Mike to say, just give it to me straight. Get that low context. Give me the statement. Don't give me flowers around it. Uh, like, I love, I love it. 
We can't just give God our lip service. I show up to church, I dress the part, I look the part, I do the thing, I say the prayers, I, I post on social media praying for Damar Hamlin, but we never actually say a prayer. Oh, prayers to you. Okay, send them a prayer. That's a really simple illustration, but can I, can I just say, let's stop being the people that say, yes, God, we'll give you our lives, and then we never actually give him the surrender and the control that he's after in our lives. We never actually give him the lordship of our lives. We just say, God, we get, no, no, Jesus was looking for the boy who at first said, no, I ain't into that. I ain't doing that. But then from the sincerity of his heart and affection for the father said, okay, I'll go ahead and do it. It was delayed, but it still, he obeyed. I want us to realize that we don't work aimlessly. We work in allegiance to the king who has given us an assignment. I, I, I want us to think about and examine the stewardship as it relates to our obedience to God. Where's your obedience level to God? Where is the... I've said something and I've sung some songs and I've done some things, but my life is not outwardly demonstrating what my mouth is saying. Where are your actions? Where are your allegiances actually pointing? A.W. Tozer said it like this, to escape the error of salvation by works, we have fallen into the opposite error of salvation without obedience. In our eagerness to get rid of the legalistic doctrine of works, we have thrown out the baby with the bath and gotten rid of obedience as well. For most of the history of the Christian church from its beginning, Christians of all creeds and denominations have agreed that there are salvation works that we do within the saving work of the Holy Spirit. When the Reformation occurred, there was a distinction that was beginning to be made between saving works, which are biblical, and works of the law, legalism, and works for righteousness where you're trying to earn something from God that you can't ever pay anyways. The Bible is incredibly clear in refuting works of righteousness where you're trying to make an atoning payment with your good deeds. You're trying to, to do enough community service, doing the right things, showing up, saying the right things, dressing the right way. You've got your checklist of Bible time. Then I sent a prayer. Then I did a devotion. Then I did this worship song and I've been to church more times than I've missed church. And, I, and I've got my legalistic rules that I'm trying to keep. No, no. You can't earn your way. You can't get God's attention with your works where you're trying to fast to get God's attention. You're trying to do all of the Christian calisthenics to make it so that you get payment no there is no works for righteousness in terms of payment and we do not work for or of legalism trying to earn our way through keeping the law where we're just trying behavior modification but no heart transformation john calvin was equally appalled by the suggestion that good works are optional he says that the only shameless that only a shamelessly impious person would dare to slander Protestants by accusing them of abolishing good works. Calvin defends the necessity of good works by saying, we are justified not without works, yet not through our works. For Calvin, God's agency remains primary in achieving them, in achieving salvation, in achieving justification, in achieving adoption, in receiving the gift of salvation. It's his agency through the gift of the Spirit that empowers our allegiance. In recent years, the church, especially here in the West, has swung into this hyper grace and, and has grown completely allergic to works and obedience of almost any kind. We think we can pray a prayer that says we believe something, subscribe and agree with a set of truths, perhaps intellectually, and that's all that we need to do to experience eternal life. 
Part of the problem is, as we defined several weeks ago, we misunderstand the definition of eternal life. We think eternal life is heaven when I die and stop breathing on this earth. John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that you may know the one who sent me and know his son too. What is eternal life? <laughs> Here is, here's what eternal life is. It's an ongoing life that is flourishing because you know and have a relationship with God and his son through the power of his spirit in your life. Those are Jesus' words. That's what eternal life is. Life that begins here and now and is ongoing in time. Go back at several weeks when we talked about this and, and I break down the word much more in detail. But we can't get past this idea and we do not, friends, hear me, we do not need to be allergic to good works. Why? Because it's part of our stewardship of our allegiance to Jesus as King. Belief and faith are embodied actions because we trust. Trust is not just this euphoric feeling. Trust is an evident action known as belief and faith and allegiance and loyalty. It reveals our loyal allegiance. Without it, hear me, without it, without allegiance, without obedience, without faith, without pistis, without allegiance, without it, salvation does not occur. For by grace you've been saved through Without it, salvation doesn't occur in our lives. So the question we need to answer right now really quickly is, what exactly is salvation? Well, that's a good question to ask. It's another one of those that we've grown up in the American church so much that we just assume we know what it means. Again, we think salvation means heaven when I stop breathing. That's not really the totality of what it means. Let me give you uh, some information. Often in the New Testament, the noun that we read as salvation is the Greek word sozo. Somebody say sozo. Come on, it's a fun word. Turn to your neighbor and say sozo. If it sounds like soap suds, you're getting close. Sozo. It refers to a rescue from sin and death through Christ and a restoration to wholeness. A restoration to wholeness within the kingdom of God. Why? Because when you have faith and allegiance in Jesus and the saving power of the Spirit comes into your life and we recognize the atoning price that Jesus paid, all of these things together in combination begin to create an allegiance and a relationship to where your life is moving in the direction of God. And the closer you get to him, he responds to you. And that is the new way to be human that Jesus has been talking about for 40 weeks as we've been studying the scriptures. This is what he came to inaugurate and announce. If you need references for what I've just defined, read Acts uh, 4, verse 12, Romans 1, verse 16, Ephesians 1, 13, 1 Peter 1, 5, Revelation 12, 10. Friends, scriptures are full of our obedience in response to the power of the Spirit beginning the salvation work in our lives. Let me read you some scriptures as it relates to your allegiance, your obedience, and these works that I said were biblical, these actions that we do in participation to the saving work that Jesus is doing on our behalf, or the Spirit is doing on our behalf. Get ready to write some references down. You won't be able to write the whole verse. Just jot it down and go with me. I'm going to go lightning speed round. Are you ready? John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 2 and verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Hebrews 5 and verse 9, and, and being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. John 15 and verse 10, when you obey my commandments, you are remaining in my love. Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who do not know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.22, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If anyone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey the commandments. This person is a, a liar and is not living in the truth. Revelation 2, verse 26. To all who are victorious, who obey me, Till the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. Romans 2, 6 through verse 8, he will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Matthew 5 and verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Second Corinthians 9 and verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency, oh, I love this verse, and all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Matthew 10, verse 22, and you will be hated for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Luke 21, 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Philippians 2, 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sozo, salvation. This eternal life, this flourishing relationship where we know God intimately, know his son, and through the power of his spirit present in us, live a life of allegiance moving in his direction. Salvation is a now, in a moment, but a not yet reality for all of us. And what happens between the now and the not yet is really important. That's what we're to steward. That's what our legions is supposed to look like. See, good works are not payment for salvation, but they are how we receive the fullness of what was paid for us through Christ Jesus. Good works are not, uh, our good works are how we endure until the salvation of Jesus in the final time when he returns. It's how we steward the salvation that we've been given. Let me give you a modern day example of the here but not yet now. Several weeks ago I ordered some things online. The minute the payment went through, those items were mine. But I didn't have them in my hand yet. It was a now moment, but I'm not yet here. And then I got one shipment, and the other shipments were several days behind. The audacity. I paid for it. It's mine. But it hadn't fully materialized in my life. I had not yet fully received all of it yet. But it had been fully paid for. Friends, Jesus is the one who paid for it. But he sent the address and the gift to your house. It's yours. And knowing that, we turn in our allegiance to Jesus and we move in his direction as we begin to receive the arrival of the fullness of the relationship with God, the spirit at work in us, both the will and do of his good pleasure, where he's given us everything that we need as it pertains to life and godliness, to living out our salvation with fear and trembling until the day Jesus returns 
good works without allegiance and love for God, friends, are dead works. In other words, without the allegiance and the love and the affection going in God's direction with his authority in your life, your works are pointless. To save you. They have no power. So you can't do good enough things on your own to get eternal life and receive the gift from God. No, it doesn't work that way. It's you give him your heart and your affection and your allegiance. And then those works that come, those things in tandem are helping you to receive all that God has for you. And that leads us to our third and final examination. Repentance. Repentance. Jesus is the saving king and awaits your response of repentance to the work and life and message that he proclaimed. Salvation is a sovereign work of God. Please do not mistake that. It is his power that saves you. You and I are helpless to save ourselves. Repentance, though, is a personal work that we do. It is a saving work because it's an act of faith. It works in this direction. What did Jesus say in in today's text? For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live. Showed you the right way to live. He lived it. He, he it. His allegiance was there. He showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him. Tax collectors, prostitutes, they believed him. But you people who proclaimed and gave lip service to a God that you said you believed him, you didn't believe him. Because if you believed him, you would have repented of the things that you were doing that were hindering your life with God. See, our repentance is this ongoing obedience. We, we don't conjure up salvation, but we do the work in conjunction with the Holy Spirit who is saving us. It's a reciprocal relationship. The question is, what is, what is repentance and what is sin? Again, words that we hear all the time in church. Do we know what it means? Repentance is both a rethinking and a remorse. We can have regret for something but not change our thinking. We can rethink something but not regret it and change it. Biblical repentance is both. It's not just one. It is remorse and a rethinking of the reality and the truths that we've held on to in our lives which results in a redirection of our life. Sin severs the relationship that we have with God. Sin is a word that means to miss the mark. What's the mark? Knowing God, eternal life, that's the mark. Sin is suffocating the life of God from flowing and growing in us. Sin is what's severing and kinking and, and breaking apart the life that God has given us and it, and it severs and it tears and it wears down this relationship and allegiance. It's these things that, that we do and think and it's you, you've heard me use this illustration. What is repentance? Repentance is having this awareness and remorse that's saying, wait a second. I've been moving my entire life in the direction of myself as my own God, myself trying to control outcomes in my life, believing that I can do good enough, that I can be it on my own, that, that I can do what I want with my money, I can do what I want with my time, I can do what I, I, I'm going here, but uh, there's this awareness that says something in me isn't experiencing the flourishing life that Jesus is promising. There is a lack of wholeness. I need sozo. I need salvation. We have this awareness and remorse it's like wait a second there's got to be another way to live this life there is you begin to think differently about who god is you begin to think differently about the kingdom of god and the people of god and the word of god but he is king and he is worth everything that i've got and i begin to to turn and rethink i thought that this was the right direction for my life but wait a second i'm rethinking some things and I'm beginning to see that there's other things in life that I, I can change, I can turn, I can, I can move a new direction. And so now this remorse that I felt and this acknowledgement of it, and wait a second, I want to go a new, I want to rethink this Jesus thing. I want to rethink that he's Lord and Savior, that he's King, that, that, that now he gets my affection and my 
allegiance flows out of it. And now there's an outward working of my life because I'm moving in his direction because this element of remorse and to rethink truth about my life, to rethink truth about the decisions and the patterns that I'm doing, it moves me in a new direction. It allows me to see Jesus for who he really is. Kind of got this illustration in my head this week. It's, let's say this rope is your life linked to the life of God. This is your life in Christ. You are saved in him. You you belong to him. You are tied and tethered to the Lord. You've made this this repentance, this recognition, you've, you've given your life to the Lord and, and sin. Well, sin is this, this, this thing. Some of you didn't know I owned one. <laughs> I do. But I didn't buy it. Somebody gave it to me, so it's fine. Some of you are watching me wave this around and you're like getting really nervous. Somebody ought to teach that kid how to use that thing. We, we start to lie. And what does lying do? Lying breaks the trust in a relationship. And we think that sin just makes us evil and awful and God can't stand us. No, no, but what sin actually does, what is it? It begins to sever and deteriorate and break apart our connection and our relationship with God because this is the relationship that brings us life. This is what brings about the flourishing. This is what brings the eternal life and the sozo, the wholeness and set rightness with God. But we just start going about our own life and we kind of decide to do sexuality our own way. We want to do money our own way. We want to do parenting our own way. We, we do whatever we want with our time because, well, I mean, we believe that God exists, but we still want to do our own thing with our own lives. And as we go about it, it starts to fracture and our lives start to fray apart. The longer we sin, the longer we keep going, doing our own thing and our own way and our own right. See, they don't give me a sharp knife. They give me dull ones. It's like like child's play. I knew that would make a good joke. Bring some levity to a moment, but but can I also say this? You think it's not one sin that's going to separate you. Because neither height nor depth nor angels or demons or anything can really separate us from the love of God, who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But, But if we keep going and we keep at it, and we keep saying, God, I, I, I kind of going to do it my own way. I want to do it my own way. We start to fray and fracture the relationship which is meant to bring us life. And when we realize, wait a second, things are fraying. The flourishing of the life of the kingdom is not growing in me. Things aren't operating the way God says. The wholeness seems to be breaking down and fracturing more and more. And we acknowledge it and we repent. God in his great mercy comes and says, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me re-strengthen the relationship and the bond of my love and the bond of my mercy and the bond of my grace and forgiveness. And then, then we keep going and the longer we live, sometimes the more it frays and the more it breaks. But God who is rich in mercy gave us yet forgiveness and a new covenant with him on the cross. And this thing that we thought we were trying to break, we can't really try to set. God wants us to live in this divine connection with him all of our days. And so we repent and we return and he re-engages the connection, strengthens the connection. And so as long as there is breath in your lungs, there is time to repent and reconnect and allow God to redirect your life back in his direction. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. There is no other way by which men can be saved. And this is our lives in surrender and repentance to him. This is why we do water baptism. Doing one in a few weeks. Because water baptism is an outward expression it's your beginning allegiance because of the loyal affection and wholeness that God has already begun through the power of his spirit it's an outward expression of the inward work that Jesus has already begun we have to steward our obedience we have to give him we need to be people who are quick to repent not because God's going to get mad at us and he's such a mean God but because when we don't we damage our own souls 
that's not what God wants for you or me. Would you stand to your feet? Would you bow your heads just right, right where you're at? And just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? Examine who has the authority in your life. Examine the obedience and the stewardship. Has, it, has there been any actions, actionable fruit? Is it, have you been stewarding your obedience? The places where you know you need to repent, you've never repented maybe, never really surrendered, never really acknowledged that he's Lord, never really changed the direction of your life. What, what is it for you? Just in this moment, just whisper a prayer to the Lord. He's listening. What's your response today? Tell him. Lord, today we've heard your word, and I pray, Lord, that it's illuminating and speaking some things. I pray, Lord, that it's unsettling us a little bit. It makes us kind of wrestle a little bit and not, not live in doubt. But, Lord, lean in in a search for greater conviction and clarity around who you are and what it means to be a partner in your kingdom. Lord, help us not become lazy Christians that just say a prayer and go live lawlessly the rest of our lives thinking that that's what it means because it doesn't, Lord. It means so much more. Lord, do a work in our hearts and our minds and our lives. Save us. Make us whole again, Jesus. May we repent and move in your direction in so many ways. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody say, amen. Hey, listen, before you move, we've got a team of people ready to pray with you. You're walking through something or you just feel like you need to respond in some way. Man, our team, they're there. They'd love to pray and talk with you for a little bit. And if you're ready to take a step and be water baptized, you've never done that or maybe... You've walked away from God and you've repented and come back to him and you want to make another public profession of your allegiance to him, man, sign up. Stop by the next step table on your way out. We'd love to get you connected and get you the information for water baptism this week. Hey, before we go, we end our service this way. Most consistently, let's say a blessing over one another. It's on the screen. Let's speak blessing over one another. Ready? Let's read it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Hey, we love you. Go in God's grace and peace. You're dismissed.